0: At that moment, their eyes, that is Adam and Eve's eyes were opened And they suddenly felt shame And so they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves And so they go from this world, this environment where there is no, no sense of shame And immediately they are impacted by by this thing called shame. I find it fascinating that that is is what the scripture identifies. It it doesn't so much talk about sin, but what it does talk about is shame. And um, I think if we were to think this through... um, it's an indication that the universal condition of humanity, or well, the place that each one of us we have a shared story and we have a shared struggle and that shared story and that shared struggle is a one of we're all impacted by this thing of shame and there is something within deep within the heart of humanity that craves to Experience that pre fall condition of living without shame. it was interesting. I talked to Louise um, after her message and I said it was so interesting when you started to talk because I remember one of the one of the the drives one of the key drives in terms of um, me um, uh, Engaging with God and and surrendering my life to Christ was this thing of wanting to experience innocence. I just wanted to feel clean. I wanted to experience innocence. And I'd so messed up my life and I felt so unclean. I realized what I was hungering and searching for was what Adam and Eve, Eve experienced at the very beginning. Was this desire to be in a world without shame? And this thing of shame is is our universal um, shared shared story. Um, Louise talked about the difference between guilt and shame. Uh, Guilt is uh, the sense of I've done wrong, it's behaviourally based. I have done wrong, Um, I've made a mistake. Whereas shame is actually identity-based. It's not what I have done, but it is who I am. I haven't just done wrong, I am wrong. I haven't just made a mistake, I am a mistake. And at the end of the day, what, what shame is, is, is this sense of I am not enough. I am, I, I am somehow inadequate. I'm not Cool enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not wealthy enough. Whatever, whatever it is, but this living with this sense of of lack, and it's a core belief that who I am is defective and and damaged, and attached to uh, shame is. There is a fear of letting others see who we really are, seeing us in that naked state, um, feeling that if those around us saw what we were really like, that we would, as a result of the exposure of who we are on the inside, would cause others to, to reject us. And so uh, this thing of shame, this sense of shame, has, um, has varying degrees of intensity. Um, from people who would struggle with uh, chronic shame, so they live in this perpetual, um, incredi- incredibly debilitating uh, state of, I'm not good enough I am a mistake. Um, I am a failure. To um, the other end of the the scale where uh, I guess there is a mild sense of shame and everything in between. However, let me just say that shame is innate. It's part of the human condition. I did some, um, some study during the week and I discovered that babies... Struggle with shame. And they've been able to uh, uh, do, do tests and, uh, and, um, and formulate some research projects where they discovered that actually children aren't born, you're kind of innocent or without a sense of shame, that they actually, as, as, as young toddlers, um, struggle with this, this thing of, of shame. It's an innate part of our, 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 our human nature. And while while shame is innate, it can be um, um, a, a sense of shame can be affected or increased by certain things, which is what Louise touched on last week. Our own behaviour can add to or uh, increase our sense of shame, or if we are the the um, the victims of of abuse or neglect, that can build. Or increase our sense of shame, and uh, what research suggests there are a couple of factors that would that that cause shame to grow in people's lives. One is if we are uh, in a, an environment of of perfectionism, a strong sense of perfectionism. So if you grow up in a family, or perhaps a church or religious environment where there is a lot of pressure to perform to attain that tends to increase people's sense of shame. Um, also, um, silence, secrecy, and judgment um, add to what is an already built, inbuilt um, human condition. And there are varying uh, manifestations or symptoms to shame. Uh, shyness, discouragement, uh, embarrassment... <coughs> Uh, self consciousness and um, the most um, intense or debilitating uh, form of shame tends to be humiliation, which is what Louise touched on last week there's a contemporary scholar who has made this um, this comment on shame he, this guy is a, a, a researcher who specializes in the area of shame. he says shame is the most disturbing experience individuals ever have about themselves. No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, the self feels wounded from within. There's another um, researcher um, who, by the name of Brené Brown who spent six years um, researching shame and has uh, uh, thousands upon thousands of uh, of, um, stories that she's gathered. And she makes, um, as far as I'm aware that she's uh, not uh, uh, not from a church background, but she made three key observations about shame. She says, number one, shame is universal. In other words, every one of us struggle with shame to one degree or another. And if we don't, um, or those who, who don't have a, a, any sense of shame are, um, are sociopathic. What does that mean? Um, socio, um, disassociate from reality? No, 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 don't disassociate. Um, there's little conscience or no conscience. That, so there's no empathy um, towards, uh, towards others and so as a result of that um, uh, can behave in ways that are, that are detrimental to themselves and, 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 and to others. So shame is universal. She also said that um, one of the roots behind shame, and I just find this so fascinating, it's, it is a fear of disconnection. And um, she says that relationship, uh, relationship or connection is what it means to be human. It's such a such an it's it's what it's what life is about. Is we were built and de- designed for relationship with others and con- uh, connection with others. And what shame is? She said through her six years of study and research, she said is this fear of disconnection. And and she says shame is the is the feeling or the fear that there is something about me that if other people knew about it or saw saw it, they would not think us worthy of connection. And then the third thing that she says in terms of, uh, of, of shame is that feelings of shame are connected to the sense of worthiness or unworthiness that we have. And um, worthiness, she describes or defines as a strong sense of Of love and belonging. So, if we have a a strong sense of worthiness or if we have a a healthy sense of worthiness, we have a strong sense of love and belonging. Whereas at the opposite end of the scale, which is to live in an unhealthy place of of unworthiness, um, is to have a low level or sense of I deserve to be loved and I deserve to belong. And she says, the only variable between the worthy and the unworthy, those that live with a strong sense of love and belonging and those that live in this, with, with a perpetual sense of unworthiness, she says, the only variable between the two is this, the belief that they are worthy of love and belonging. The thing that separates the worthy and the unworthy, those that live uh, with strong sense of shame and those that live with low levels of shame, is their belief that they are worthy of love and belonging. And I, I, I feel that those three things that she draws out so echo and reaffirm what the scripture has to say. That shame is humanity's universal common condition. That um, it is a fear of disconnection. A fear of broken, of broken relationship. And you go into Genesis uh, chapter 2 and that was the drive behind uh, Adam and Eve. What the, the, as they are struck with shame, what do they do? They, they hide in fear of what God may think. And thirdly, this, this thing of worthiness, which is connected to our, our need for love and belonging. They're so tied to, um, tied to, to God's word. And um, as I was pondering on Louisa's message last week and how um, she un- unpacked scripture for us and, and showed us that the antidote to, um, to shame is the gift of righteousness that comes to us through Christ. That Christ died in a place of nakedness in order that we could receive from him the gift of righteousness, the robe of righteousness that would cover us in our shame, in our, in our, in our shame and give us a sense of, of dignity. Now, I pondered on that whole thing and I thought, if shame is the universal and fundamental human condition, if that's really the root of our problems, then it seems to me that the central story of the Bible must be how God has acted in Christ in order to address shame and remove shame from our lives. If it's the big issue of humanity, then surely the the story of God is this. And the aim of God and the goal of God is, how can I alleviate the burden of shame which impinges upon humanity and stops them from relating with one another, but more importantly, from relating, from relating with me, because God at the core of His being is essentially a relational God. And um, in that account in Genesis, um, as uh, Adam and Eve seek to cover their shame with uh, a construct of, uh, of, of fig leaves. Um, It's an expression of how we try to um, build our own sense of righteousness. And a little later on, it's just a a beautiful verse in in the next chapter, in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And it says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now you've got to remember that Adam and Eve up until this point had not, experienced or seen anything of death. They, they were vegetarians. They'd never seen death. And here for the very first time, they encounter death. And most um, uh, Bible scholars, theologians believe that it is quite likely and there's, there's, no, there's no, um, uh, no solid evidence for this. But I think it's probably true that the animals that were slain in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve's shame were innocent lambs. As a picture or as an indication of the redemptive work that was to be accomplished by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, who would lay down his life as a sacrifice and his life would be for us our covering, our righteousness. That would enable us to re-engage with God. And that, folks, is the basis or the foundation of... uh, uh, It's the starting point of us dismantling guilt in our life. We have to... And and Louise uh, um, um, shared on that last week. We, We need to understand that God has enacted in order to dismantle shame in our life through the work of the cross and through the gift of righteousness that comes through the cross. That is the the starting point. But I think there is, um, beyond the cross, there are also a couple of things that I think would be helpful for us to understand in order to help us dismantle this thing of shame that touches each one of us. And I'm just going to touch this morning on on those things. If you have your Bibles, would you flick open with me to, let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. And we're going to look at a man uh, by the name of Mephibosheth great name. As you may be aware that in, in Hebrew culture and also in other, in other cultures of the world, um, names have great significance. Names indicate um, identity um, or give a sense of a person's nature. And what's really interesting about Mephibosheth is his name means man. Of shame or great shame. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth uh, was the, the son of Jonathan, the, gra- the grandson of King Saul. And Mephibosheth uh, as a young man uh, grew up uh, in, or as a young boy, I should say, grew up in the palace, his grandfather was king, um, and it was assumed that when um, Saul passed away, Jonathan would become king, and when Jonathan passed away that at least at very, at very least he would be prince, but quite, quite possibly one day himself would be king but because of um, uh, of of uh, uh, saul 's Conduct. Saul, King Saul, forfeited his right or a place of kingship, and that was uh, that place of kingship was uh, taken from Saul and was bestowed upon 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 David. And uh, Saul uh, was a man that was um, very conflicted. Um, There was, uh, we would say today, he he was. had mental health issues. He was obsessed with um, killing David because David had been, I guess, bequeathed the throne, and, and Saul had a sense, felt the sense of entitlement that that place or that position belonged to him and was threatened, threatened by David. Cut a long story short, what happened is uh, Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle. And was, uh, young Mephibosheth was uh, five-year-old at the time when his father and grandfather died. And it was the, the custom of the day that, um, that when a, a, a king, if a king was, uh, was killed, um, the, the king that was to emerge on the throne would actually slaughter or kill any remaining relatives of the prior king to ensure that there was no other heir would come and take or stake a claim to the throne. Did I I convey that correctly? didn't make sense to me when I said it, but I know what I mean. Um, I hope you know what I mean. And so young Mephibosheth, and if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became, became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth or son or man of shame or man of great shame. So what happened as the news of uh, Jonathan and Saul's death, there is panic hits the the palace and uh, young Mephibosheth is picked up in this panic because they're thinking, oh my God, David is going to come and is going to kill us. He's going to stake his claim, the rightful claim to uh, take a position of rulership. We better get out of here. And um, in this mad panic to escape um, from... What they perceived was going to happen, which was David was going to come and to claim the throne, he would do what was the common culture of the day: is slay all of the uh, of the um, uh, the family. Sorry, what was the word? Heirs. heirs, That's the word I was looking for. All the heirs of uh, of Saul and Jonathan, and as that is taking place, um, young Mephibosheth, this young boy, is picked up by the nurse. The nurse trips and falls. And somehow ends up uh, crippled or lame in both legs, and they go off. Uh, the nurse and uh, Mephibosheth, and perhaps a, a couple of other members of the family, go off, and they they live in hiding for many many years. In fact, they go to a place uh, out in the wilderness called Lodi Bar, and this this little it's a little kind of it's not even a it's not even a Spot on the on the on the map. It's just kind of lowly bar, and it means a place of no pasture. It's a barren place, and it can also mean a place of no promise. And so Mephibosheth has lost his father and his grandfather. He's lost his position, lost his title, lost his home, and he's living. In this, as as a hideaway in the middle of nowhere, and you can imagine this young boy growing up into through his teenage years, into 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 a young man, and he is seething with resentment. Oh, what could have been, and oh, what should have been. I mean, back in those days, the culture of the day, in terms of his disability, um, he would have been extremely marginalised, being unable to walk. It's a desperate picture. And he thinks to himself, man, if I could ever get my hands on that David, I'd, I'd, I'd throttle him, I'd kill him, and I would, I would take over the throne, and I would live in the palace. You can have a sense, as you begin to ponder the the life of Mephibosheth, that he was branded, this was his name, shame, the the, the man of shame. He lived with this, this sense of, I am wrong. And all of the evidence of my life suggests I am wrong, I'm a mistake, I'm good for nothing. However, back in the palace... Is David. And David provides for us a picture of what God is like to those of us who are a people of shame. And if we turn to two Samuel chapter nine. And verse one, we're just going to read through till the end of the chapter. David, remember, is a picture of God. David asked, "Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake?" In a few weeks' time, we're going to start a series on the life of Abraham, and we're going to look into we'll come back to this story in a few weeks' time, because there's, there's so much richness and depth in here, but we won't go there yet. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, asked the king. Zebed answered, he, as he is at the house. What is interesting, if you look at the Hebrew language, that word house can be translated as prison. Interestingly. He is at the house, uh, he is at the house or the prison of uh, Maka, son of Amiel in Lodibar. In his barren place without promise without life. And so King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Makar, son of Amiel. If you can just imagine yourself, go into this story for a moment. Here um, Here is Mephibosheth, the son of shame or the man of shame. The great fear of his life is that one day King David will find out where he is and come and get him. And one day he's sitting on the veranda and he hears the sound of horses and of chariots coming and over the hill appears all the king's horses and all the king's men and they ride down and circle his house and he thinks, This is it. I'm a dead man. The king has finally found me and he's going to kill me. When when Mephibosheth, in verse 6, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, man of shame, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. This is God speaking to those of us who struggle with shame. Don't be afraid. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I mean, I just leave that, 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 that line there. I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather. If we were to trace our history and our heritage back all the way, it takes us to where? It takes us back to the garden. It takes us to Adam and to Eve. It takes us to what our original inheritance is. What rightfully belongs to us is a world without shame. That is our inheritance. That's what, that's what rightfully belongs to us. That was what was given to us at the very beginning. And it says, I will give you, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This man has such a poor self image. He lives with. Chronic humiliation; that he his per, self perception of himself is such that he considers this is as low, as as low as as low as a Hebrew person can get. Then the king summons Ziba. In other words, David didn't even respond to Mephibosheth's view of himself. He just moves right along, and he says, Saul's servant and said to him, I have given you uh, your master's grandson your, your master's grandson, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for, and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Zebah had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the servants of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. We need to build on the foundation of righteousness that comes to us through the cross of Christ, that robe of righteousness that's placed upon us, the moment in which we we respond to Christ. And we overlay upon that, that robe of righteousness a few things that help dismantle this thing of shame that wants to bring us down. The first thing is We need to remember that we are not forgotten. God knows us. Secondly, we need to understand like David was wanting to show Mephibosheth kindness. God wants to show us kindness. Just like David took the initiative to seek Mephibosheth out, so God has taken the initiative To seek us out. And it doesn't matter what barren place we are in. God will find us. The next thing is that God wants to restore to us what has been lost. And what has been lost is our innocence. What God wants to remove from us is shame. And what God wants to do for us is he wants us My goodness me, he calls us, he invites us, he welcomes us to sit at his table. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we gave the illustration, I pulled a table out here and I put some chairs around it. And I said, this is a picture of of the Trinity, This this is the community of God, God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit seated together around the table. And the message of the gospel is that we are invited to come and sit at the king's table. We are included in Christ and we are co-heirs. In other words, we are co-equals together with, with, with Christ. And at the king's table, that, the, the king's table is a position or a place of sonship, of family, of friendship, of of intimacy. It's a place of welcome. It's a place of, of, can I dare say, of equality in Christ. It's a place of provision. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of dignity. It is the place of love and belonging. It is the place, the ultimate place of loving, love and belonging. And I'm all for psychology and for what psychology can achieve. And it can and does achieve wonderful things. But what the gospel offers us is a place at the king's table, the ultimate place of belonging, the ultimate place of love. Love. What is it that takes an unworthy person and shifts them to greater levels of worthiness? It is what? What did we say? It is believing you are worthy of love and belonging. It's interesting that Mephibosheth's story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 and ends in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 13 mentioning that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. I find it really interesting. It starts, his story starts with him being lame and it finishes with him being lame. And... I think if we kind of meditate on that, what it says to me is this it's not our walk, it's not our behavior that gets us to the table. And it's not our walk, it's not our behavior that keeps us at the king's table. We are seated seated in that place of belonging and of love and of identity and of sonship and of family and of intimacy because of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the generosity of God who is totally committed to unravelling shame From our lives, so that we would be a people that live with our heads held high and become conduits through which the love and the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God might flow into the lives of others, so that we too can be David's to Mephibosheth's. And our goal, you know, if we want to experience family, if we want to experience relationship, relational connection, then we need to be a people that sit at the king's table and remind one another, of what our true position in Christ is. Remember, it's not our walk that gets us to the table and it's not our walk that keeps us at the table. It's the fact that the invitation has gone out. It's at the King's invitation that we're welcome. And my goodness me, if we can live in the reality of that, if we can encourage one another in that, if we can remind one another of that, if we can go out into this world and tell the story, how awesome would that be? Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you that... uh, Each of us in our own way are little Mephibosheths. Um, we're, we're stunted and, and we're, we're in our, our lowly bars, our, our barren places in different areas of our lives. And I just want to thank you so much, God, that you come to us, that you seek us out, that you invite us to come and to be with you and to live with you. Help us to find our place at the table. Help us to stay there, I pray. Help us to invite others to the table. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.